The Tom Woods Show, episode 2102. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. I'm giving away three free courses from my Liberty Classroom. One of them is ex-Marxist Michael Rechtenwald teaching you about critical theory so you can understand leftism and fight it better, as well as our course on how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America and the history of the conservative and libertarian movements. Check it out at threefreecourses.com. Hey, folks, Tom Woods here. Our old friend Paul Gottfried is back with us again today. Of course, Paul holds a PhD in history from Yale University, and he is the editor of Chronicles Magazine. And I've seen a couple of his recent columns and thought, we should talk this through, but we're going to talk it through and then who knows where it's going to go because I'm going to treat this as if I called Paul up on the phone and we're just talking. So you're listening in to my private conversation in effect. Think of it that way because we're probably going to be all over the place, but just wherever the conversation goes is where it goes. Paul, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me once again. I like being undeceived. You know, I, I don't want to get false hope. I don't want people to say what I want to hear. But doggone it, Paul Godfrey, when I read your columns, it's like, this is too much undeceived. I think I do want to be slightly deceived. <laughs> you know, I think I can't stand to be ground down this much <laughs> you know, when, I, when I read some of what you write. So in particular, you have a piece, was it in American Thinker? I can't remember the source of it now. No, no, no. It's American Greatness. I don't write for American Thinker much anymore. <laughs> okay, it is. I'm looking at it right now. American Greatness. So that's amgreatness.com. Of course, I'll link to the article on the show notes page, but it's called Getting the Kind of Government We Deserve. Mm -hmm. And subtitle, which, you know, is probably the editor putting it there, but I think it sums up what you're saying. There is no justification for absolving irresponsible voters. The right should stop trying. And I hear what you're saying, that it's tempting in a way. It's tempting because it's an easy solution, or at least it's a comforting thing to say, that when we're surrounded by crazy lunatics who are hell-bent on destruction in every part of life and society, we think, well, the, the voters have been betrayed or deluded somehow. You know, they, there's no way they authorized this. You know, you, you sure, of course you want to believe that. Mm -hmm. But what's the actual truth according to you? Well, the actual truth according to me is that a majority or near majority of the American people and a majority of most of the voting population of Western Europe support the crazy woke left and the administrative state, which is bound together with this woke ideology. And I was particularly disturbed, by the way, not by what happened here, but the, the references to, you know, somehow das Volk, the people in Germany are not voting. Somebody else seems to be voting to put these lunatic leftist government they now have, which is repressive which punishes you for even daring to say that the Germans are a nation in some ethnic sense, which have all these ridiculous COVID lockdowns and attack those who oppose it as Nazis. This, this coalition wins overwhelmingly in Germany. It won in the Zalan last week, in which the left-leaning or the left-moving Christian Democrats were soundly defeated by the more radical social Democrats, who aren't really social Democrats anymore. They're, they're, they're woke lunatics. And they're repressive, and they want to destroy people's liberty and right of expression. The Germans seem to be very happy. with it. Americans are generally happy with this. 
I think we may exaggerate the degree of opposition to this horrible democratic administration in which we're living. I was looking at the poll numbers in New York and the current governor, who is probably to the left of Cuomo, seems to be enjoying you know, some kind of popularity. She would beat Zeldin in, in a race by these four or five. Now, we're being told that the Democrats are going to be trounced in November. I'm not even entirely sure that's going to happen. So I think people are responsible for those whom they vote for. Blacks in the inner city are not victims, except of their own hatred of white people and their willingness to be gulled again and again by race hustlers like Mufumi and Maxine Waters and most of the members of the uh, Congressional Black Caucus. Voters are responsible. They have high crime in their area. They do have alternatives, but they're so happy to vote for somebody who plays the race card persistently and attacks white people for their problems. They go on voting in this absolutely suicidal fashion. And my view is we have to hold people who do this responsible. We may be deluding ourselves, and I think we would, one could make a case that we are, by thinking that everybody is responsible, voter or this. I don't think that's the case, as you know, and as I think I make pretty explicit in my book after liberalism. But if we're going to operate with this assumption, then we have to hold all voters responsible for their behavior. I also do not understand why the American right is unwilling to hold people responsible. The left certainly, and they not only hold us responsible, they want to disenfranchise as traitors, people who voted for Donald Trump. The left has no problem going after voters who are on the other side, even wanting to strip them of their voting rights. Conservatives are terrified to say things like this, that, you know, it is your fault. You voted for these horrible people. You're bearing the consequences that you fully deserve. I cannot see any other reasonable position that one can take in this matter. I personally, I welcome people who change their minds. I welcome people who look around and say, well, I guess you're right. This isn't quite the society I wanted. But what I don't understand are people who say, I voted for Joe Biden and now I'm really sorry I did that. He's right. doing everything he said he would do. <laughs> yes. Now, one thing he's doing, he didn't promise to do. Exactly. I had an article on that. Right. He did everything he promised to do. And now people say, I'm so disappointed. I thought he would do something else. Or he was a moderate. But if you listen to the things he said when he was a candidate, he has been faithful to all the promises that he made. Yeah. And this is where we are now. Now, let me ask you about, I don't know if this is a counterexample or not. But what do you think about, just in terms of a non-woke regime, mm -hmm. what do you think about the news out of Hungary politically? Well, you know, I have a column that I wrote this morning. I think Hungary is a true national democracy. I am not categorically against democracy. I think it works in small nations where there is some sense of national interest or national consciousness. And I think Hungary is a, you know, sort of a textbook case of that. I contrast this in my article to liberal democracy, which is the ideology of the Western ruling class, the, the alliance of woke ideology with global capitalism and the administrative state. I am delighted with what happened in Hungary. I was delighted with the victory of Orban. So, you know, I'm not categorically opposed to all democracy. I'm sure that even if H.L. Mencken were alive today, he would be happy with the electoral results in Hungary. What about people who say, but the right wing in its own way 
is as much a threat to your liberty as the left wing is. And so there are dangers in Hungary also. Yeah, I mean, I I'm, just, any... I'm just throwing you a fat one over the plate, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I don't see any evidence of that. Orban won his victory despite the enormous amounts of money being sent in by global capitalists. He was outspent about 10 to 1 in the race that he ran. And, you know, I thought it was really thick when they were complaining that he didn't give the opposition enough time on, I don't know, state control. I don't know if there is a state-controlled media in Hungary, but they should have been given more time. As if the leftist media need more time. I mean, they control the media. And Hungarians, I suspect, were also being bombarded with leftist propaganda night and day. In Hungary, opposition is allowed. There is no political correctness. You can be on the right, you can be on the left. You know, there is open discussion. The left does not want open discussion. They want to ban people who are to the right of them. So I think one could say that Orban is a liberal, you know, in the classical sense, much more so than the people who oppose him, who are generally the people who are in favor of political correctness and cancel culture in the West. Are there other countries where you feel, well, actually, before we even get to that, how do you account for the fact, is it that Hungary has an ethnic homogeneity? But there are other countries, I'm sure, that are like that, like Germany, that are extremely hard left. Right, right. Well, the difference is the Hungarians were not re-educated the same way the Germans were. And in several of my recent books, I've made the argument that German re-education turns the country into a basket case. You know, they're educated by Frankfurt school, cultural Marxist types. And most of this has been absorbed, one might say, into the cultural political mainstream of of the country. I think they're also going to look less and less like Germans because they now have about 8 to 10 percent minorities. And I think most of the minorities that are now coming in are Muslim minorities, third world minorities into the country. The Hungarians have resisted this. Remember, Orban did not want to accept migrants into the country unless he could carefully screen the people who are coming in, which he couldn't do. So I think the Hungarians are much more concerned about preserving certainly their cultural, religious homogeneity than the Germans. The Germans, I think, are on the extreme opposite side, one might say, of the political cultural spectrum. They're an example of a country that seems to be headed for self-inflicted doom. We've reached a point where people we're allegedly having a political discussion with on the other side will respond with the word fascism, even if you so much as mention the word culture. Mm-hmm. The word culture now means fascism. It's so stupid. I can't. I yeah. refuse to engage with these people except to mock and ridicule them. Because no, you're it, absolutely right. There's no one who's no one who takes that position that I can see who is a person of distinction or learning in any way. It is always social media screechers who don't know anything about anything. But let's imagine, for the sake of argument, let's stipulate that they are coming from a place of goodwill and they just don't understand what they're saying. When you say such and such country wants to preserve its culture, why is that not fascist? Well, the problem is that all countries want to preserve their culture. By the way, I'm really amused when I hear the attacks on Orban. For instance, he's a fascist because he doesn't want gay instruction in the schools. He doesn't want to sexualize nursery school kids. Or he's a fascist because he's a devout Christian. Now, these were all the common characteristics of every Western country until recently, right? I mean, I'm 80 years old. 
even when I was in college in graduate school, I do not remember hearing any leftist advocating the sexualization of children, giving them homosexual instruction. These are all very recent ideas. And I'm even amused when I come across arguments being made by neoconservatives that Hungary or Russia or someplace is not part of the West because they don't have gay marriage. I mean, gay marriage didn't exist there until a few years ago. So what the left is constantly doing is imposing more and more lunatic ideas on us in the name of fighting fascism, a term which by now has lost any kind of historical cultural specificity. Well, I think about people who celebrate multiculturalism. And I'm talking about the naive people who think multiculturalism just means that you want to go to an Ethiopian, a Greek, and you know, a Cambodian restaurant or something. Like that's what they think it is. And that there's no ideological agenda involved. It's just an innocent celebration. But look, everybody likes trying different restaurants. That's not that's not what we're talking about. But the thing is, those places, and I just showed, you know, could be Greek, could be anybody. Those places whose cultural contributions everybody is said to appreciate, if they hadn't had a culture, then they would have nothing to share with us. <laughs> if their entire culture had consisted of appreciating other people's cultures, they wouldn't have one to bring here. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And if you look more deeply, what you have is not an appreciation of other cultures. It's a hatred of Western Christian civilization you know, which takes the form of glorifying third world societies and holding them up favorably to the racist, bigoted, homophobic world in which we live and so forth. So that even the homage that they're paying to Ethiopians or, I don't know, people from vastly different cultures, third world cultures, is entirely phony. It's really meant as a put down for a Western society that does not measure up to the multicultural standards of the woke elites. I want to shift gears a little bit because you wrote, as we've heard just in our short conversation, you write a lot of columns. <laughs> so you wrote another column that you sent me this week too, but this one is in your own magazine's right. blog. Was it in the print edition or just online? It's just online. Okay, okay. So how neocons turn democracy, in quotation marks, into grotesque ideological imperialism. So right now you were just saying that in certain circumstances, a democratic system can function adequately. Right. But that's very different from what you're talking about here. Mm -hmm. So what are you talking about here? Yeah, what I'm, I'm talking about is liberal democratic imperialism. I have great respect for Swiss or Hungarian democracy or democracy of Baltic states. It is not imperialistic. It is based to a large extent on preserving national identity in a traditional culture. What I think the neoconservatives do is sort of take over the latest woke version of democracy or perhaps the penultimate version, the way it was maybe five years ago, and see this as a blueprint for reconstructing the world so that you know whatever they want to do in America, whatever we're doing here must be exported to other countries in order to validate this. By the way, I came to this idea, as you know, years ago by studying Max Weber and Carl Schmitt's understanding what they call the tyranny of values, that an individual or group says, this is the highest value. And in order to validate my value, what I have to do is impose it universally. So, you know, if I like the United States in its present form of democracy, whatever you want, liberal democracy, 
I'm obliged to give this to everybody in the world, either as, as an act of generosity or because I'm afraid that we are going to be threatened in our society unless everybody else is. It's sort of the old communist argument that in order to make socialism work in one country, you have to spread it all over the world, right? The Trotskyist argument. <laughs> and th- this is what the neoconservatives have revived. And I sort of found myself sympathizing with Ukrainians who I think are being subject to a brutal invasion. On the other hand, when I hear neoconservatives come to the defense of the Ukrainians, I have to think twice, do I really want to be allied with these people? Because I think they're very dangerous and they seem to have a stranglehold over American foreign policy. They're represented in the national media very heavily and they've influence in the conservative movement as well as on the left. You know, they seem to be a kind of all-pervasive danger. I've been thinking recently about the Cold War and the kind of people who on foreign policy during that time were more or less on the same side. You know, they thought the Soviet Union was a threat and we need to protect against that threat. Mm -hmm. But that once the Soviet Union fell, this coalition of people who were against it suddenly became very clearly disaggregated from each other. Right. And I wonder if they fully understood while it was going on that they each had a different outlook on the world, on what the U.S. role should be. I wonder if this was somehow beneath the surface and not realized by everybody. You know what I mean? Because I could very well see, well, because in fact it happened. You had a lot of neocons who were all fully on board for the Cold War, but then you had Pat Buchanan on board for the Cold War. Did they realize that they were, although in some sense on the same team temporarily, that in the long run they weren't going to be on the same team? Did they realize that they're two different, that they, maybe they had two different reasons for being against the Soviet Union? No, I think they did have two different reasons being against the Soviet Union, but I, I think what happened was by the end of the Cold War, the neoconservatives took over. So, you know, and the rest of us became uh, Pat Buchanan or myself, we became dissenters. But you're right, there was a broad coalition at the beginning supporting the Cold War, recognizing the danger of communism. And this went actually from the far right, supporters of Joe McCarthy in the 1950s, to social Democrats, anti-communist social Democrats who were in the uh, Committee for a Free Congress, which was made up mostly of left-wing anti-communisms getting CIA money. What happens is the left-wing anti-communists win. (laughs) And they drive the other ones out. So I, I think by the end of the Cold War, it was certainly apparent to me where this was going. I think it was apparent to Pat Buchanan by then. But the left-wing anti-communists, who were the neoconservatives then, and were pretty much running the conservative movement, collecting money, and had sort of reconciled themselves to corporate capitalism. They did very easily. They were the one in charge of the conservative movement. So you say, you know, did they all... Re- well, I mean, these people were running it by then. And I think by the end of the Cold War, it was also obvious that, or certainly after the Cold War, that the United States no longer stood for Christianity or the right, right? The United States stood for global democracy and in many ways represented a much more radically leftist society than the communist societies, which we defeated. I'm jumping around a little bit, but just because I, I just want to make sure I cover all the sorts of things I'm curious about. If we're going to talk about the electorate now, of course, People who vote for Biden and then have regrets, I just, I can't understand. Right. I can understand very well why, unlike the media and unlike the left, I can very well understand why somebody 
in 2016 voted for Trump. I understand that completely. Mm -hmm. So to me, the silver lining here is that even if you completely demonize a group of people, I mean, demonize, you know, I always say, we hear a lot about so-called marginalized groups. I wish I could be so marginalized that every single spokesman of American society was openly in support of me. Boy, I would I would love that kind of marginalization. I'm talking about real marginalization <laughs> where your your livelihood is ruined, your reputation is destroyed, you're called every name in the book, everything you believe in is caricatured and presented ridiculously. That's marginalized. And so I get why those people went for Trump. Mm-hmm. And so in other words, even though they suffered all those things, tens of millions of people still said I'm still not voting for the person I'm told to vote for. So so I would say, number one, that is at least something. But the thing is, Trump was a profound disappointment even to those people, if they're paying attention. If for no other reason than that he surrounded himself by people who hated him, mm-hmm. we could have told him people who might actually do some good, and we were supposed to cheer him every time he fired somebody he had hired. So when I recently... I was invited to a DeSantis roundtable and I had a chance to talk to DeSantis a little bit afterward. I, I was kicking myself for not having said what I want. The one thing I really wanted to say to him was, if you ever do run for president someday, can you do us all a favor and please break the cycle and not actually surround yourself by people who hate your guts? Could you just, could we have just one guy who could just do that? And the thing is, I think he would have laughed at that. I think he would genuinely have appreciated what I was driving at. No, I I think you're right. But again, there's a problem here that, let's say you're a Republican and you describe yourself as a conservative, you become almost by default, a neoconservative, because those are the people who control everything. They run the Heritage Foundation, AI, you draw your advisors from these groups. They run most of the conservative media, except for Tom Woods and a few others. So this is the milieu in which you have to operate, even as a conservative. They're certainly not going to come to me. They're probably not going to come to you. But you know, they will go to the president of Heritage Foundation, the person who's running AI. And The thing is, exactly how do you break this cycle and make these political leaders aware there's something beyond the conservative establishment in its Washington incarnation? I'm not quite sure how we could manage that. But I do agree with you that any person who is placing high hope in Trump breaking the cycle should be disappointed, even though he was sort of an adequate president in some ways. He did surround himself with neoconservative advisors. We had people like Nikki Haley and John Bolton and others in his administration. And he really was not that different from an ordinary Republican, except for his overblown rhetoric. Folks, let's take a brief moment for me to spread some happiness. What do I mean by that? Every month, and I checked, I subscribed August 13th, 2019. So every month for two years, I have received a piece of happiness in my mailbox. And if you want to be a hit with your significant other, you will follow in my footsteps. Now, what is that bit of happiness? It is the happily date box. Every month we get a box with a different theme inside containing a music playlist and activities of all kinds and games and conversation starters that bring you closer together with your significant other. Sometimes it's competitive, sometimes it's cooperative, but it's always fun and relaxing. We've had boxes with an 80s theme, a Japan theme, a stargazing theme, 
all kinds of different things that help give us a special night together. Show your significant other that you value time together by checking out the Happily Date Box. And because you know all woods, take 50% off your first date at tomwoods.com slash date. Here's what I want to know. Somebody like me, I'm sure somebody has accused me of it, I haven't seen it, but somebody like me gets accused of probably being paid by the Russians, you know, to express his views, or I'm in the pay of somebody. And I sometimes think that's projection, because I think the kind of people who would accuse somebody of that, I mean, obviously that doesn't happen. There's no check. I mean, it's so ridiculous. But the kind of person who would say that is the kind of person who would change his view if he got a check, Mm -hmm. you know? So they assume that the whole world is like that. So they don't know how to deal with a person like me. So they just assume I must be getting a check because that's what would motivate them. So I am now curious as to about what exactly do the neocons stand to gain from this foreign policy? I mean, yes, it's possible that they are extremely idealistic and they want to spread democracy on the world, around the world, but I have to feel that there are some vested interests involved here that are, let's say, less abstract than that. How do you answer that? It's very hard to answer that without being accused of being a bigot, but since I'm Jewish, I'll tell you. For the neoconservatives... <laughs> The kind of America they want to establish globally is one in which Jews, they think, will feel safe. There will not be an overbearing, you know, state religion that is not Jewish. There will not be reactionaries who might persecute Jews or people like themselves. And the entire world would be made to look like an America in which they are part of the ruling class. So, I mean, one could understand where they're coming from, right? I think a lot of it is driven by emotional insecurity. I mean, I've known these people for like the last 50 years, so I can tell you many of them are emotionally insecure. And they really are, they're afraid of the right. They're afraid of the right and the anti-Israeli left, as far as I can tell. Although some may be afraid of that part of the left, which will destroy them economically as well. There are some more traditional conservatives who belie themselves because, you know, they're pretty much the only game in town, particularly in foreign policy, if you want to be a conservative. I mean, everyone on Fox News, except for Tucker Carlson, sounds exactly like a neoconservative. But I I think there also may be some of these people who are profoundly idealistic, you know, and they think America has now reached the pinnacle of, you know, democratic success in accordance with Francis Fukuyama, right, that we are the last stage of human history now. Liberal democracy, as he understands it, is the highest stage of human development. So one might say that even if, you know, if I were not simply an emotionally insecure Jewish neoconservative, but if I believed in the ideal, I could say almost in an Hegelian sense that you know, we've reached the highest point in our political and moral existence so now our political existence is liberal democracy, and it's just too good to keep to ourselves, right? Now that we've perfected it, you know, we'd like to share it with the rest of the world. Well, look, I'm a Catholic, and most public figures who are Catholic, but I don't just mean public figures who happen to be incidentally Catholic, like Sean Hannity, but I mean people who their identity is that they're Catholic, like George Weigel. Right. And gosh, who was that democratic capitalism theorist who was a Catholic, and now I can't think of Oh, Michael Novak, but he's dead. Michael Novak. Okay, so somebody like Michael Novak. Everybody knows that being Catholic is part of his persona. I don't mean to say that he's fake about it. I just mean when you bring Michael Novak on, you know you're bringing on a Catholic person. So all the Catholics in public life that I know of who make being Catholic their 
primary identity are all globalist neocons. But I'm a Catholic, and I'm not a globalist neocon, and I don't think there's anything about Catholicism that requires me to be one. Well, likewise, you're Jewish, and you don't agree with Jewish neocons on the way they view the world. Why not? I mean, how is it that you're Jewish, but you see the world differently? I think the difference is that I live mostly in a Christian world. They don't. <laughs> but I think the more interesting question is the one that you just raised about Catholics, because I have a book or anthology that came out on conservatism, the vanishing tradition, published by Cornell and Northern Illinois a few years ago. It's a very good essay by Jesse Russell, who was a very conservative Catholic, on Catholic neocons. And Jesse's argument, which I think is entirely convincing, is that at a certain point in their history, neoconservatives needed Catholics. They needed a Catholic front organization. Just remember the communists used their front organization. So although most neocons were Eastern European Jews with a few Irish Catholics working for them, like Bill Bennett, they decided that we have to, you know, really be more of a Catholic presence. They got Michael Novak, they got George Weigel, and Robbie George, and a few other people, and they were rewarded handsomely for their service to the neoconservatives. And every time the neoconservatives took a position, you'd get Weigel and all the others saying that we as Catholics have to agree. And they would, you know, quote some Pope or, you know, find some lines in the Summa Theologica or something that they could use to explain why they as Catholics must agree with neoconservatives. Well, what happened at a certain point was they became useless. I mean, there was no reason to have this front organization since the neoconservatives were now totally in power all the foreign policy positions on Fox and elsewhere are expressed by, ne by neoconservatives. So you don't need these people anymore. Also, some of the things didn't work out well. Like you had a lot of neoconservative Catholic propaganda in favor of the Iraqi war. George Weigel was saying, you're not oh. a devout Catholic unless you support this war. Well, that turned out even though Even though the Pope at the time was against it, Benedict XVI. I know, XVI. I know. <laughs> Russell points that out. The Pope came out against it. Or, although, <laughs> actually, I can't remember. No, I guess back then it might have still been John, it was still John Paul II, but the point remains. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I, that's the point he points out, that the papacy would not cooperate anymore, so they couldn't play this, this act. And, you know, they became at a certain point just superfluous, so they stopped funding them as heavily. Well, one thing that we're, you know, where maybe the, the left may have a point was that Weigel kind of fashioned himself as the official interpreter of John Paul II. Right, right. And so he would interpret John Paul II to be a democratic capitalist like himself. Mm -hmm. And democratic capitalism doesn't mean Austrian school free market economics with a tinge of democracy. It means the American empire is what it means. Right. So, and the thing is, that's trying to push a square peg into a round hole, you know. That, but, but he, you know, he tried. He gave it the old college try. But the other thing about Weigel that I know from being on the inside here is that he could, if he were required to, he could change on a dime. Like whatever you want me to believe, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. So for years and years, he tut tutted us, those of us who wanted the pre nineteen seventy liturgy, you know, the so called old Latin mass. The, the mass they have now, you could also say it in Latin. So it's not strictly a language thing. Mm -hmm. It's the old ritual, the old Latin mass. He would tut-tut us because, of course, official authority was crowning on that at that time. Then right. Benedict XVI <laughs> becomes Pope and says, 
we have to offer both rights parallel to each other, and we have to celebrate the old one because we just got done telling you 10 minutes ago how sacred it was. It would be ridiculous for us to turn around and tell you you can't strive to have it. And all of a sudden, Weigel is talking about the wisdom of this. I mean, yes, how can you respect somebody like that? Jesse Russell, by the way, cites that as an example You know how he's gone back and forth but he always was a sort of a willing instrument of neocon power. Just he couldn't bring the papacy along to support their positions. And now I'm quite sure that the Francis regime, which is just horrendous, would give a guy like Weigel the back of its hand. Like he's, <laughs> he's on the right. outs. Right. He's not getting any papal audiences these days. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, all right. Let's. I I think we'll just close on slapping George Weigel around for embarrassing us <laughs> so very much. If only the world could be exposed to normal people who, from these various religious traditions, how much more peaceful a world would it be if we could have the non-warmongering versions of all of us be the ones that the media goes to when it wants to get opinions on things? So the rest of the country might think, well, they're not. Turns out these people, you know, like these Catholics are not all crazy. Oh, how about that? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. But the media also has more traditional leftist Catholics whom, you know, you see them on CNN and so forth. So Weigel is presented as the conservative Catholic alternative. Right, you know? right. And compared to them, I suppose he is, but the left liberals in the church want to support the last five years of what's been going on. And, and Weigel wants to support the last, you know, 45 or something. Right, <laughs> that's, right. That's the big choice you have. You know, <laughs> if you want the church of 1910, you're out of luck. There's, there's nobody... <laughs> Nobody favors that, except old Pap Buchanan. Yeah. But that's about it. So anyway, let's say a word about Chronicles Magazine, which I continue to enjoy. The, the article by Anthony Esselin, and I don't, it was a recent piece, yeah. and I don't, remember, I don't remember the name of it, but you'll remember the theme where he was saying that what really riles the left and helps to stitch together all the enemies they have is anything that represents repose calmness, peace, ordinary life. They have to disrupt. They have to revolutionize. They need violent intervention. They need to mock it and attack it. Anything that represents that, they have to oppose. And I thought, why have I not seen it quite that way? So it actually made me think I got to get him on the show. And he is a highly literate literary scholar. I mean, he, he reads- Well, anyone who can translate the Divine Comedy, yes, <laughs> right? Yes, he's, I think, an Italian scholar. Family's Italian, but he's learned all kinds of languages and he is a brilliant writer. He is. I've had him on one time back when he was at Providence College and he was getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. And it was so absurd. I mean, he compare him to, you know, let's say most of the faculty on that campus who I'm sure a lot of them are forgettable. <laughs> and you have a prize- scholar like Anthony Esselin, you're going to give him a hard time? I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. that is the world we live in. But I'm going to propose to him, actually, that because he has so many books and he has a new one coming out and he's got such an interesting perspective that we do a week of episodes with him. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, and this would actually make it more interesting that he and I have some disagreements, but it'll show the world you can have cordial disagreements like normal people. Mm-hmm. You can actually disagree like normal people. That still exists in the world if you look around hard enough. So I want to say to people, you are the editor of Chronicles magazine. Chronicles is the magazine where in 1993, I wrote my very first article. So that was <laughs> where I wrote hear that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a small piece, but it was written about the, let's see. 
actually now it's been so long, I can't remember if it was my own. Yeah, no, it must have been 1994. It was about my commencement experience at Harvard. We had Al Gore as our speaker, and we had some terrible person as our class day speaker. I think it was it was one of those Hillary Clinton types who they believe in families, but they believe in administered families, you know, by right. the local bureaucracy. I mean, might have been Marion Wright Edelman. Remember that name? Yes, I do. Yeah, I think she was the class day speaker. So right. I had been urged by people, you know, you could write articles for real magazines now. Mm-hmm. And I thought maybe somebody would be interested in an inside take on the Harvard commencement. And so I did that. And I was so pleased because I had been a Chronicles reader for a couple of years. And that was where I wrote my first, my first article. So say a word about Chronicles before we wrap up and how people can get it. And by the way, you can you can get a digital edition, but there I know, I know out there that there are people like me who in the same way that you don't you understand the convenience of the Kindle, but you really like holding an old-fashioned book. Mm-hmm. I know there have to be people who like opening that mailbox, seeing a physical thing in there and reclining in the easy chair and going through it from cover to cover. I know there have to be. So, Paul, what do you have to say? Well, I would agree it is the best conservative magazine out there. And it is an authentically conservative magazine, which I think makes it even more commendable. For those who want to subscribe, just go online. We have made it easy to subscribe. And you'll be getting your first issue probably within a few weeks. We are absolutely amazed at how the magazine seems to have taken off in the last two and a half and three years since it came under the, the aegis of the Charlemagne Institute, which is my technical employer right now, but we are constantly working to increase the staff, the quality of the magazine, and we've never sold quite as many on the newsstand. We haven't done as well with subscriptions. We'd like to do better, but we are being sold at Barnes and Nobles and other bookstores, and we always offer a very exciting cover. We have excellent graphics, and we need that we need those graphics in order to stand out on the newsstand. But I would urge all of your listeners to, you know, to go online if they haven't done this so far and to subscribe to Chronicles. I have a print subscription, which is how I found, of course, was able to read that Anthony Esselin article. So I highly recommend it. And you will see in there some familiar names. You know, it won't be a whole new world for you. You'll see some familiar names. You'll see some names of people you've heard me interview and stuff like that. And that will be your entry point into the greatness that is Chronicles. Chronicles, I remember I first heard about it from Murray Rothbard Mm -hmm. because he loved that magazine. And Mm -hmm. he thought it was a great example of the right wing that he wanted to be part of, that was literate, that was not bloodthirsty, that that had interesting things to say Mm -hmm. other than just the latest talking points about some Democratic president. I mean, who cares about that? (laughs) And it wasn't all a bunch of... Now, there's nothing wrong if you're in your 20s, folks. Nothing wrong. That's a wonderful time of your life. But I don't want a literary or news magazine that's written entirely by people in their 20s, okay? I would say that even when I was in my 20s, I didn't want it to be. When I Mm -hmm. used to read National Review, I did not want it to be written by people in their 20s. I wanted it to be written by people who've been around a while, who have read an awful lot, who have been through things, who know how politicians deceive them because they've been through it time and again. You know, I need that kind of of wisdom. And that's what you get with Chronicles. Because Paul here, Paul the editor, Paul's just over 50. 
You know, so he'll, he'll guide <laughs> you through. with the case. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen, thank you, Paul. The website again for Chronicles? Just look up Chronicles. No, Chronicles I'm going to look. I'm going to get the website and tell them. We are not telling them. Just look. ChroniclesMagazine.org. Right, that exactly. Way. Yes, there we go. ChroniclesMagazine.org. Go do that, everybody. And thank you, Paul. Okay. All right, everybody. That's going to do it for today. I have to run right on out the door. So no closing banter except to say thank you for listening. And I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.